Welcome to this week's bonus episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. In this episode, we welcome Drs. Thomas Ortel, Jeffrey Weitz, and Kenneth Bauer as they discuss the blood review series on the treatment of venous thrombotic disorders. Dr. Thomas Ortel is a hematologist at Duke University Medical Center and the coordinating editor for the review series. Dr. Jeffrey Weitz works at McMaster University in Canada with a focus on patients with thrombotic disorders. Dr. Kenneth Bauer is a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and is affiliated with Beth Israel Deaconess Hospital. Dr. Ortel sat down with contributing authors, Dr. Ken Bauer and Dr. Jeff Weitz to discuss new and innovative treatment of venous thrombotic disorders. I'm Thomas Ortel, a hematologist at Duke University Medical Center where I specialize in hemostasis and thrombosis disorders. I'm also an associate editor for blood and responsible for putting together this review series. As we were developing this review series, it became important to us to make sure that we reached out to the full community of people who are involved in the treatment of patients with venous thromboembolism. We wanted international perspectives as well as national perspectives towards the treatment and how we pursue that in individual patient populations. With me today, I have two of the lead co-authors, or two of the lead authors of the review series. I'm Jeff Weitz. I'm a hematologist at McMaster University in Canada, and I'm a professor of medicine and biochemistry, and my clinical focus is on patients with thrombotic disorders, both arterial and venous thrombosis. I'm Ken Bauer. I'm a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. My hospital affiliation is at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, where I'm a benign hematologist with a particular focus on coagulation disorders, both thrombosis as well as bleeding disorders. The theme for this review series is the treatment of patients with venous thromboembolic disease. The articles that we selected are papers that reflect important treatment issues both in common presentations as well as less common presentations. There are six articles that comprise the review series. The first one looks at patients in the acute setting, what are the appropriate treatments for acute presentation with venous thromboembolism, including pulmonary embolism and DVT. Which patients can go home? Who might be considered for thrombolytic therapy? What anticoagulant might you pick? The second article in this review series looks at long-term treatment of patients with venous thromboembolism. The patient has been treated for about three months to six months of anticoagulant total. And then who do you consider to continue anticoagulant therapy and who do you stop anticoagulant therapy in? Then also in that setting, which patients might you consider to treat to prevent uh, complications that can be associated with venous thromboembolism, such as con chronic post-thrombotic uh, disorders, such as uh, thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, such as post-thrombotic syndrome affecting the leg in patients who've had DVT. The third chapter in the review series covers rarer thrombotic manifestations that patients can develop. About 10% of people can develop thrombotic complications affecting the splanchnic circulation, the cerebral sinus venous circulation, the upper extremity, the kidney, etc. This article explores those particular manifestations of venous thromboembolism and talks about how long you might treat them, what are the appropriate treatments for those patients, et cetera. There is much less data 
to support many of the recommendations there, and it identifies a number of areas that we need to have further study. The fourth article in the review series looks at pediatric patients with venous thromboembolism. Pediatric patients make up a much smaller proportion of the total patient population with venous thromboembolism, but there is an increasing frequency of venous thromboembolic events, particularly in hospitalized children. There are unique aspects to the treatment of the neonate with venous thromboembolic disease that differs from the teenage patient with venous thromboembolic disease, and those are covered in this particular article. Areas where we need more research include the use of direct oral anticoagulants in this patient population and who can receive that. The fifth article in the review series discusses the issue of thrombophilia. And here we're not asking the question of who should be checked for thrombophilia, but rather we're asking to look at which patients in whom you know a thrombophilic condition exists, what should you do for that particular patient. For example, the patient who has had screening done for a genetic disorder predisposing to thrombophilia that has been identified through a direct-to-consumer advertising strategy that the patient knows but nobody in the healthcare system necessarily performed the test on. Also, the impact has been surprisingly relatively low for inherited thrombophilia as far as management of patients with venous thromboembolic disease, except in certain unique situations, for example, antithrombin deficiency and how that may affect heparin and low molecular weight heparin dosing. Lastly, the importance of which patients you should check for antiphospholipid antibodies in and how that might impact your duration of treatment and your choice of an anticoagulant that you might use in that particular patient population. The last article in the review series was intended to kind of round out things and identify where we need to move forward, identify where there are still limitations. For example, bleeding complications still occur in these patients, and the anticoagulants themselves may not necessarily be best for all clinical settings. And for this one, we wanted to cover new and developing areas with new antithrombotic therapies that might be introduced within the next one to five years, somewhere along that time frame. This can include targeting new targets, such as factor 11 or factor 12. It may include approaches to look at the fibrinolytic system and modulating the fibrinolytic system. It can also look at other ways to try to decrease inflammation that might lead to some of the chronic complications that patients may develop after a venous thromboembolic event. So I've got these two individuals with me today to talk about these particular aspects of the review series. Thanks for the introduction to the series, Tom. It really focuses on VTE from acute treatment, chronic treatment, special cases, and then looking into the future of where the field is going. And that's the focus of my chapter. I'm really looking at what's on the horizon for management of venous thromboembolism and for reducing its complications. And my chapter really focuses on three areas. One area is the strategies that are being used to try and reduce the complications of venous thromboembolism. And those include, as you mentioned, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension as a complication of pulmonary embolism, and probably even more importantly, post-thrombotic syndrome as a complication of proximal deep vein thrombosis. What I focus on are some of the strategies that are being used to either enhance clot lysis, to enhance the degradation of clots, 
or strategies that are used to reduce inflammation to try and reduce the complications of post-thrombotic syndrome. And then there's the anticoagulant approach. And as you mentioned, we're looking at new targets, factor 12 and particularly factor 11. And there are a large number of studies going on right now looking at factor 11 inhibitors for various indications. Where that will go at the end of the day is unclear, but I think the need is for safer anticoagulants because still, although the direct oral anticoagulants have been a huge advance over vitamin K antagonists like warfarin, still the major side effect is bleeding and anything that we can do to reduce the risk of bleeding will be an asset to our patients. This series is particularly timely for a number of reasons in terms of what's actually happening on the ground today. We've seen now a huge shift in terms of therapeutics with introduction and widespread adoption of the direct oral anticoagulants, which are being very widely used in preference to warfarin for many but not all indications. One has to really look at that really in the context of how we manage patients and the changes that have gone on. One of the chapters is on the eternal question of duration of anticoagulation that Dr. Kieran is still a very important issue that clinicians struggle with and even hematologists struggle with. My particular chapter is the old question when patients come in, why did I get a blood clot? And invariably, is focused on the blood, even though there are many other, any other elements and, and reasons for it. So we really have to look at things in that lens with regard to these new therapeutic changes that have taken place. And that's opened up in some ways, revisiting some questions about really how we manage people, both in terms of what drugs we use, as well as what the implications of testing. One of the areas perhaps most important that's been raised by the direct oral anticoagulants for patients with VTE from a diagnostic or hypercoagulable perspective, which is my area of interest in my chapter, is the question, of course, of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. Very heterogeneous, very complicated disorder, but that's one place where the direct oral anticoagulants are not faring well compared to warfarin. So that brings up the question, not only how long do I treat the patient, but does my choice of agent going to be different based on identification of a thrombophilic disorder? The other issue is the age-old issue of thrombophilia testing, which the hematologist may not be the one doing the testing, but the one ultimately who is the go-to person as the expert in knowing how it should affect the patient management. So at least in my chapter, I didn't go again, who should we test? We've talked enormously about not testing people if you're not going to change your management and most of the data suggests hereditary thrombophilia testing shouldn't change it but I think things have become considerably more nuanced for a lot of reasons. Direct-to-patient testing is happening, the genomic revolution whereby getting more and more information if you work in an oncology center there's not a genetic test on a tumor or liquid biopsies that's not being done so for I think the train has left the station as benign hematologists to argue not to do this stuff, even though we will oftentimes not test patients. I try not to test because you go down a rabbit hole. But I think that raises a lot of issues, too, as you approach the patient. The final issue is you know, the whole question of duration, indefinite duration. There's been 
really raising awareness that the dichotomization of provoked and unprovoked is not dichotomous, that there is a gradient of risk. People with minor transient risk factors or persistent risk factors who are intermediate risk. So we're left really to make judgments about risk assessment, both for bleeding and for thrombotic risk, and to balance that off to make our decisions, not only whether to leave them on anticoagulation, which is a first, then what dose of anticoagulation, and finally, what agent. I think this is a really timely set of papers because you know, we're at the crossroads. We've adopted the direct oral anticoagulants for management of most patients with venous thromboembolism. But now the question comes up, what about testing for antiphospholipid syndrome? Because those patients should get warfarin over a direct oral anticoagulant. So you have to think about it and look for it when you're looking at your patient with acute venous thromboembolism. And then which patients can go home and be treated as outpatients. So with the direct oral anticoagulants, it's much easier to send the patients home, either from the emergency department or from the clinic even, without admitting them to hospital. We've been doing that for years in Canada. Most of our DVT patients are treated as outpatients, and many of our patients with pulmonary embolism are treated at home. Particularly patients with incidental pulmonary embolism they are patients with cancer and the pulmonary embolism is diagnosed on a scan that's done for staging purposes. But physicians have to feel comfortable and we have to get the data to show that it's safe to do that. And then as Ken says, it's all about the duration of anticoagulation. It's so simple now to use the direct oral anticoagulants and we even have with two of them a reduced dose regimen that you can implement after six months of treatment with a full dose for secondary prevention. But we now know, as Ken mentioned, that it's not dichotomous with just provoked and unprovoked. Within the provoked category, there are patients whose VTE is provoked by relatively minor risk factors, and they have a risk of recurrence that's substantial, so should they get extended anticoagulation or should it be stopped? And we have the issue about the use of the direct oral anticoagulants in the pediatric population, as you mentioned. Emerging data indicates that you can use these agents, but it's complicated because dosing in neonates is different than dosing in children, which is different than dosing in adolescents and different from dosing in adults. So. It's complicated, but there's emerging data that they can be used, which could simplify their management. And then we need to look to the future. What are we going to do next? How are we going to prevent some of these complications of venous thromboembolic disease, the post-thrombotic syndrome, the chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension? And how are we going to manage the bleeding episodes? We have reversal agents now for dabigatran and reversal agents for the oral 10A inhibitors, but can we not get safer drugs that reduce the risk of bleeding? So it's interesting times, and what do we do about thrombosis in unusual sites, in the cerebral veins, in the portal vein, the mesenteric vein, and the direct oral anticoagulants are moving into those areas as well. So interesting times, and this series is extremely timely because it's bringing all these issues to the fore and pointing us 
into what to do now and maybe where we'll be going in a few years from now. As you mentioned, Jeff, I agree completely with this idea that we've got new areas where the role of the direct oral anticoagulants is emerging, the pediatric patient population as well as in these patients with unusual sites where they have thrombotic events. Questions that arise there, additional questions that arise there include the duration of the anticoagulant therapy for all of these populations as well as what do we do with the thrombophilia data, which is frequently drawn in these patient populations, and we have large amounts of data with little understanding of what to do with it. We get into very nuanced areas because the issue of thrombophilia, and now I'm talking about hereditary thrombophilia, factor V lidin and prothrombin mutation, even protein C, protein S, antithrombin deficiency, particularly for lighting and prothrombin, the issue about whether having those variants leads to a higher risk for somebody who's had an unprovoked event, pretty clearly it doesn't significantly change that risk, that their risk is determined by having an unprovoked event. We get into the issue, though, in does it in any way impact people with minimally provoked events, whether it puts them in a somewhat higher strata. We really don't have data on these points. So at that point, we're in areas where, you know, we need more data, but of course, one has to remember that VTE is multi-causal. People are obese. <laughs> they, they have factor V light-in. They have had an event that was you know, provoked by a minimal risk factor after arthroscopic surgery. So you have to put all these things together in terms of doing risk assessment. Age comes into the mix too. Age is a very important risk factor for VTE. We don't really have really great risk assessment tools to incorporate all of these things. People have tried to do it, but it becomes very complicated to do that, not to mention thrombophilia screening, what you do with it. I still think there is the large perception that if you have a thrombophilia, that something needs to be done differently after six months than not, that that drives the decision. I tend myself to be much more driven by tell me about your clot, tell me what was going on about your clot, tell me about your family, much more important in driving my thinking about how to manage that patient as well as the risk and benefit that young people. To be frank, I try to look for reasons to get them off anticoagulation and give them another chance. And Tom, just one area that this series doesn't touch on very much is primary prevention. And we shouldn't forget the fact that about 60% of patients who present with venous thromboembolism either develop the clot while they're in hospital or they have a history of hospitalization within the last three months. And the importance of prevention so that every patient who comes to the hospital should have their VTE risk assessed and they should be receiving appropriate thromboprophylaxis in hospital. And then, as Ken is pointing out, the duration of thromboprophylaxis is still an issue that needs to be resolved, but just giving thromboprophylaxis will reduce that risk. And of course, there are lots of awareness campaigns. The World Thrombosis Day is uh, focused on raising patient and physician awareness about the risk of VTE and empowering patients to advocate for appropriate screening and, and thromboprophylaxis so we can prevent some of these complicated issues. These reviews are the articles that were selected for these reviews were all intended to be representative of how do we approach the patient with a venous thrombotic event. The management of these patients has changed enormously over the course of my career. 
starting out with only having one oral anticoagulant to now having a selection, to looking at patients differently as far as what type of risk profile they have for having an event in the first place, and then how do I stratify that individual patient to decide who should continue anticoagulant therapy and who should not. These data are coming out continuously and greatly changing what we can do. They offer us new agents that we can treat. They offer us new indications for who we should treat and when. They offer us new indications for how we can prevent in the first place. For me, this has been a very exciting field all along as far as seeing it develop, seeing it mature, seeing the new therapies come out, et cetera, as far as driving my decision to see a review series on this topic. And for me, I'm looking to the future. And one of the eureka moments for me was looking into the reasons why the direct oral anticoagulants failed for prevention of clotting on mechanical heart valves. One of the areas where we still have to use warfarin is in patients who have mechanical heart valves. And identifying factor 11 and factor 12 as drivers of device-associated clotting, then positions them as a target. And then in 2015, we did a study with an antisense oligonucleotide. We knocked down the levels of factor 11 in patients undergoing knee replacement surgery and showed that factor 11 knockdown was more effective than low molecular weight heparin for prevention of uh, venous thromboembolism after major orthopedic surgery, and that changes our thinking about the pathogenesis of VTE. We know that surgery exposes tissue factor, tissue factor drives thrombogeneration, but what this factor 11 data show us is that thrombin must feed back, activate factor 11, and that factor 11 activation must be very important for clot formation. So all of a sudden, my thinking about how clots form and what drives them has changed. And that's why there's so much focus right now on factor 11 as a target for new anticoagulants. I realized in writing this about really what some of the real unanswered questions even on problems we face every day in the clinic in terms of risk stratifying people. We have a pretty good idea what the prognosis for occurrence is at people at the edges, but there's a big intermediate group. And that includes people you know, with clearly provoked events who may have thrombophilia. Does it make any sense that their risk would be no higher than somebody who does it? There's a lot of work been going on about identifying all the other genetic variants that might be out there to contribute risk. They are there, but they seem to be pretty weak, at least at this point, and don't really add much to do it. But there are a lot of unanswered questions, and particularly about uh, risk stratification and work we have to do, and ultimately then the, the benefit risk profile, as, as Jeff has been alluding to, of anticoagulation. One of the big questions, too, I think, is even though the low doses of the direct oral anticoagulants looked very good, remember they were not testing non-inferiority of a standard dose versus the low dose. They were testing for the superiority compared to either aspirin or nothing. So the question is, there will likely be people who have a higher thrombotic risk who require the higher dose, as well as the issue of the lower dose having a lower bleeding risk. It, at least in that particular target down at thrombin and 10A, we, we know that more anticoagulation will lead to more bleeding, and there's probably an efficacy issue too, although 
the directorial anacondas have this huge advantage that their therapeutic window is, is much, much wider than warfarin, which obviously has allowed them to allow for a much simpler, more patient-friendly approach in terms of anticoagulation. This review series is going to have a very large impact, I think, on hematology in general. There's a few specialists in the area, such as Dr. Weitz and Dr. Bauer, who see these kinds of complicated patients at the extreme and, and help with that. But many of the people in the community of hematology see thrombosis as a part of their overall practice. Broadly speaking, this applies to hematology in general. Thrombosis is a common complication even in our patient population that are taken care of by our colleagues in malignant hematology. Thrombotic events occur there, and how these agents are used is going to become important, and new agents may be more valuable in those particular patient populations. So I think that broadly speaking, this targets all of our colleagues in hematology as far as the value of this review series. I think what you said is really important, Tom, because as you indicated, a large percentage of our colleagues in hematology deal with patients with malignant conditions, and about 20% of the patients with venous thromboembolism have underlying cancer, whether it's a solid tumor or a hematological malignancy. And those patients are particularly challenging to manage. Their risk of bleeding is higher than patients without cancer. Their risk of recurrent thromboembolism is at least two-fold higher than patients who have venous thromboembolism without cancer. So they're very challenging. And I really think that this is going to be the next level of management, refining how we manage that particularly challenging group of patients. And can they have their dose of the direct oral anticoagulant reduced after six months, even if they still have metastatic cancer but stable disease, can you safely reduce the dose or should they remain on the higher dose? I mean, these are just some of the questions that need to be answered. What do you do about the porticath that's in there for venous access or the peripherally inserted central venous catheter? None of the prophylactic measures that we've tried have worked so far. Could we use low doses of direct oral anticoagulants? Would factor 11 inhibitors be better? Would factor 12 inhibitors prevent that? I think that's the future. So lots of exciting things going on and it'll keep us busy for a few more years to come. This has some analogy to uh, you know what the field and our colleagues in oncology do where, you know, they become sub-sub-specialized because there's so many different lines of therapy and options. The issues here in, in management of thrombosis and anticoagulation, while the advent of the DOACs made for this simplification, at least in terms of administration of the drugs and the lack of need for monitoring, but as you get more options, whether it's choice of dose, other new agents coming along for other specific indications, you get layers of therapy that then really sort of behoove, obviously, the hematology community to sort of embrace having people who really specialize in this area to really sort out these issues, which has created the increasing demand that I think we've seen in all our centers for you know, people who focus on benign hematology and particularly in coagulation and thrombosis and bleeding to deal with these questions, which more choices need more complexity, unfortunately, in terms of agents. I would like to thank all of the authors who agreed to write the articles for this review series because they put in their time and effort 
and helped craft a review series that I feel truly encompasses this issue and the complexities and the nuances of treatment of venous thromboembolism. I think that the readers will find that the articles really do open up questions and, and raise issues and address topics that we can address, but identifies where we still need to work more. And I'd like to turn it back and thank Tom for having the foresight to put together this series and to bring together a group of articles that kind of surround the VTE space and cover different aspects of its management. And it is heartening to see blood make a focus on a very important issue. We shouldn't forget that venous thromboembolism is the third most common cause of vascular death in the United States and worldwide. So it's the number one preventable cause of death in hospitalized patients. So physicians need to be aware of it. And hematologists in particular need to understand how to prevent it and treat it and to manage it because no matter which aspect of hematology you're involved in, you're going to see patients with venous thromboembolism. So I thank you, Tom, for putting this all together and it's going to be great to see it come to fruition. I'd like to thank all of the listeners to this podcast. I think that we are giving you some insights into what's contained in these articles. The articles are scheduled to come out in early 2020 in blood as the review series, and we really look forward to feedback from those who read the articles and what they find interesting and where they find new questions. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to www.bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thanks for listening to this review series summary. The Blood Podcast series is made possible in part by support from Servier Pharmaceuticals.